circumcision. Is there wisdom behind it rooted in tradition and culture? Is it a beneficial health intervention or is it maybe not so healthy for the body and the mind? Is it genital mutilation? Is it a violation of human rights? There's a lot of dynamism to this topic of circumcision. Welcome to the Vital Veda Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Smith. I'm an Ayurvedic practitioner and health educator based in Sydney, Australia, traveling around the world. I deal with a variety of circumstances of patients, of health conditions, because Ayurveda, which is the tradition of medicine that I study, means the science of life. So it deals with everything in life. One of them being trauma, being the health of the male physiology. In fact, what we work a lot with is reproduction, reproductive organs, fertility, infertility, preconception, pregnancy, postnatal, and you know, male physiology in the act of conception is half of the story. So for example, when we're looking at infertility, a lot of people are putting the blame on the, the female, but not considering that male is actually 50% of the seed. So we've done heaps of episodes on fertility and infertility and specifically gynecology you can look at. But today we have a very important episode on a huge topic, one that is affecting many, many, many. And it's funny because you'll see Brendan and I sometimes have a bit of, at the end particularly, a bit of, um, not exactly tension, but healthy tension because I'm trying to be all-inclusive. And I want to just say, first and foremost, if you've been circumcised, if you've circumcised your children, if you plan to, like, or particularly for if you already have been or you have circumcised, don't feel bad. Everything is okay. Everything is being the present. We do things shift and there's certain karmas involved in many actions that have happened. And we want to really explore this with an open mind and with presence of where we are right now. And really, or with topics like this, with significant medical interventions or cultural or religious interventions that are controversial, Thus, we've created this podcast episode to bring awareness to a serious issue, which is got a lot of um, darkness and misunderstanding, misinterpretation around circumcision. We want to, if possible, as much use your intuition, use your heart and your, you, you can physically also feel it about how you feel about this, particularly if you are planning to have children of course, planning to have boys, even circumcision is also with women, but definitely not as popular. You want to consider these things. And if you can, it all boils down to tapping into your heart, to intuition. If you can't do that, you need to, perhaps I'd recommend doing some more work into expanding your intuition for meditating and practicing certain Ayurvedic techniques and things. So this is an important, crucial topic, crucial episode. I highly invite you to share this with people and listen to the end because we're going to share about a competition. You can win some of Brendan's awesome work. So enjoy. Brendan Murata, I'm so excited for you to come to the show, to the Vital Voter podcast. It is a topic which has been, you know, I knew I was going to interview you before I saw your film <laughs> because I knew the film was there, American Circumcision. And I, I, I knew you're the man to interview. I didn't know much about you. I just heard a little bit about the film and I said, this is, this is the man to talk about circumcision, such a crucial, important topic, which is extremely prevalent. I think you said it's the most common surgery in, in the US today. Is that right? Yes. 
Yeah, so I think, and then the second, I mean, we used to say the com- most common surgery was gallbladder removal, but we weren't even thinking about circumcision. <laughs> so gallbladder must be the second one. It's also how you measure it. So is it percentage of the population that's had the surgery? If so, yes, because it's done in the beginning of life, which means that over the course of someone's entire life, this is an impact on them. Whereas there might be things that have a high rate in old age, but those are things you only have to experience for a few years or in in old age, as opposed to your entire life. Yeah, absolutely. So it's very prevalent and... Yeah, I wanted to obviously watch the film first and it was pretty full-on, mind-blowing, wonderful. I really like how it's a very fair-sided debate, I would say. it's You go into so many topics in the film with, not a debate, but you're hearing from both sides of the story. You go into the health, you go into the religion, you go into the sexuality, you go into trauma, and you're really interviewing both sides. You're interviewing experts, doctors, and people from the Intactivist, which is an awesome name, by the way, <laughs> and that movement. And, you're, and you've are and you got people like the head of the P- American Association of Pediatrics and this uh, big public speaker and doctor in Australia who speaks for circumcision. So I really appreciate that. And I just want to say to listeners that Brendan is a filmmaker. He's an author, podcaster, public speaker, father. And his last film, American Circumcision, won multiple awards, played on Netflix. He's the author of Intactivist Guidebook, The Haunting of Bob Cratchit and Children's Justice. He has spoken at Yale Yale University, the International Conference of Men's Issues, the International Synopsis of Genital Autonomy, Children's Rights, the Association of Prenatal Psychology, and hosts a regular podcast called The Brendan Marauder Show. And he lives in Austin. So welcome. Put the whole bio in there. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> the first question I'm going to ask you is, what did you do today? What is your daily routine in general? It's a common question we ask because in Ayurvedic medicine, it's a big thing to have a good daily routine. What did you do? Uh, so I normally have a daily routine. In the past two days, I've become obsessed with AI image generation and been obsessively learning everything I can about that because I think that those tools are going to have a huge impact on anyone who does creative work. And so I have set the next six months to learning everything I can about those. And of course, I'm putting this on a recording and maybe tomorrow that will change completely or I'll learn something new about them and go a different direction. But I I had an inspiration to go into that and I've started playing with it. And it's actually been bad for my daily routine because I've become so obsessed and interested in it that that's what I've been doing. So normally, and actually I did do this part today. Normally the first three hours of the day I spend with my one-year-old son, Marco, because my wife takes care of him at night. And then I let her catch up on sleep a little bit in the morning and spend time with him. And uh, he's the best. And he is... I love him so much. He is at the stage where he's starting to, he's almost walking. He's not walking yet. And he's also talking a lot and very good at expressing himself. And so it is a joy to just be able to spend time with him. And, you know, I'm his dad, so there's all these other things I have to do. But he, I, I'm finding that I like him at, 
as a person and I like spending time with him. And it's to the point where there's some part of me that says like, Oh, even if he wasn't my child, I'd probably, I like him so much. I probably want to spend time with him. which I know is probably like a rash, like that's probably not true. Um, <laughs> but it feels that way. So mm. I love him and I love doing that. And then usually my, my daily routine is now built around his naps. So once he has his first nap, then I will go and do as much intense work as I can get done. I have my like morning focus. I will do writing. Uh, I have a substack, www.hedgemanmedia.com. And I'll do as much writing there as I can. I'm working on another nonfiction book. I'm working on a novel. And the AI playing with those tools has been the focus of the last two days. So I've been doing that in that time. And then if I can get three to four hours of really good writing in, that's kind of the amount that that muscle can usually go. And when I was working on the last book, I would do about 3,000 to 5,000 words a day, which sounds like a lot, but you, like, you get the whole book out in one intense you know, sort of month of work. And then there's like a year of editing it. And when I edit, I'll take an entire chapter out and just completely throw it away and um, rewrite a whole chapter. And, you know, some chapters I look at and go, I've changed my mind on that. I want to say this differently. And so there's that process. And then afternoons are for whatever else, you know, errands. Sometimes I'll do something with my wife. Sometimes um, we'll do a family thing. Sometimes we'll have some more stuff to get done. And then in the evenings, there's usually... Uh, a little more family time. And then in evenings, I tend to do reading or any kind of spiritual work that I feel like is important. If there's been something that's been on my heart or my mind or that's been bugging me, that's usually the time I'll go into it. But like I said, today's been different. Today has been, there's a little more family time because my son had a little trouble going to sleep last night, which meant my wife didn't get much sleep last night, which meant I needed to help them a little more. And uh, then I've also just been obsessed with this new AI tool. <laughs> Great. Love it. And like type, type 10 words in and have an image that would have taken an artist 10 hours before. And mm. that's wild to me. And I'm starting to think about, okay, can I take that tool and combine it with other tools that make images move? And then could that then auto generate an animated film i don't wow. know it's all it's like it's really in really early stages type stuff but mm. i kind of feel like looking at it that we're not far away from the star trek holodeck where you'll just say like computer run renaissance simulation and like in vr you'll be there wow i <laughs> love it man so anyway that seems like your man really into his projects and love it i yeah i have an obsessive mind so. <laughs> yeah cool all right so how, how did you get into the topic of circumcision? I mean, it's, it's a huge passion for you. You didn't, you didn't only write a film, but you're writing books about it and you're becoming a, a speaker and author about human rights justice. So how did you get into this? Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes I don't, I don't always want to go into that story because why I'm interested in it might be different than why someone else is interested in it. And I feel like sometimes when people ask me that, what they're really asking is why should I be interested in it? So let me just turn the question around. Do you want to know my story or do you want to know its importance, why it might be important uh, to you? I think we'll talk about why it's important to everyone. 
and all these people. Okay. But I want to know. I want to know your personal story, and I know, of course, it's you, everyone has their own story, own background. So the the why it's important to everyone is that if there was any other issue that affected every single man in America or partner of a man, every person who became a parent, you would think like that's one of the most important issues in the world. We just have to talk about that all the time. And it's also an issue that you can't reverse. In other words, if there's other things that happen to you in your life, you could make a choice to do something different in the future. Whereas this is a permanent thing that's happened to someone that they can't undo, at least not with the current technology. Although there are some people who are working on regenerative medicine things and trying to figure out, you know, could you use stem cells to regrow it and things like that. And that will require large piles of money and years of research. But, you know, we all hope such a thing would be possible. But I just, it affects people so deeply and in such a personal way. And what I've learned about psychology and trauma is that the things that happen to people really early in life affect them on an incredibly deep level in a way that it impacts them for the rest of their life. And so, you know, on any other form of, of cutting of the body or sexual abuse, I think people would immediately understand it. So if someone said, oh, when I was a little kid and I was born, uh, you know, someone held me down and cut off one of my feet. You'd be like, oh my God, that's awful. Like who would do that to a baby? And if someone said, oh, when I was a little kid, you know, someone sexually assaulted me and touched my genitals in a way that I didn't consent to and that didn't feel good to me, you'd be like, oh my God, that's awful. Who would do that to a baby? And if someone says that someone touched a child's genitals and cut part of those genitals off, people say, oh, it's cleaner, it's healthier, you know, what's the big deal? Whereas there's this, and I think the only explanation as to why people don't immediately feel a visceral negative reaction to genital cutting and circumcision is that there's such intense cultural conditioning around it, such what in my latest book I call like cultural hegemony. It's like a, a, there's this large set of beliefs and things in the culture that everyone just sort of absorbs that's around everyone, certain assumptions that everyone just sort of are, are there. And, and, and you can tell, by the way, with these assumptions, because if you ask, like, where did you hear that? Like, where did you get that idea? Or you start probing them, like, what do you mean by that? So if since, oh, it's cleaner, circumcision is clean. What do you mean by that? Cleaner how? What does that mean? Cleaner than what? Is the natural sexuality somehow dirty? Like, what are you talking about by that? And then if you say, well, where did you hear that idea? There's no, oh, I heard it from this book. or it, There's no particular source. So I just, everybody knows. How? Like, where did you get, that's, that is a, a cultural belief, right? Something that, oh, everybody knows. It's just a thing that's out there. So. Uh, it's strong. It's severe dogma. And I want to explore yeah. that because, you know, people looking at circumcision, is there wisdom rooted in the tradition of it? Is it a beneficial health intervention or is it impacting health in a negative way? Is it genital mutilation? Is it a violation of human rights? So this is this dance and certainly the dogma's there. And the dogma's there in a way that people don't even think about it. Like I'm only recently, especially since watching the film, I'm having the conversation with my, I'm in a generation now where a lot of my friends are having babies. And like, especially this week, particularly like I'm, I'm up at a place where we had a friend's wedding. There were like so many kids there and people pregnant. And like, I just asked them, man, you know, if it's a, it's a male, what do you think? And a bunch of them are Jewish who don't even think about it. It's just conditioned like, oh, yeah, it's a male, I'm Jewish, like, 
but they don't even have the thought of, oh, is it going to cause trauma? Is it going to cause uh, health adversities? Any any of these things. So, and how, like, let's let's go into bit by bit. Let's start with perhaps the I don't know science kind of foundation of of medical. Before we kind of get into tradition, I would like to explore that and see is there wisdom. Usually, there's something there. But let's just talk about medical. The biggest thing, as you mentioned, is it's hygienic. That's the argument for it. So can you share the... Well, if you go all the way back on those claims, the medical origins of circumcision began during, not religious origins or cultural, medical. Those began in the Victorian era and, and it was proposed as a cure for masturbation. You know, the, the idea during the Victorian era was that circumcision caused, or, or excuse me, that, that masturbation and sexuality was somehow inherently dirty, that it caused a whole bunch of ills, and that, well, if we could just remove the most pleasurable part of the penis, that this horrible social ill would go away. So when, when you go back on the, it's cleaner argument, it's actually, it's a morally cleaner argument. Uh, and this is and the late course, 18, I, second half of the 1800s. Oh, the yeah. Right. Area. Yeah. And... I, for the longest time, when I'd he- heard that, what people had said was, oh, it's just the Victorians were crazy. And I thought that for a long time, too, until I read the French philosopher Michel Foucault's analysis of the campaign against masturbation. So Michel Foucault is in social justice activism and, and critical theory. Like His ideas are hugely influential. And one thing he wrote about a lot was the history of sexuality and this idea that the the Victorians weren't crazy, that there was something else going on. And what he says is that the society and, and the state had an interest in power over people's bodies and sexuality. In other words, that there was this thing called sovereign power. You know, the king has sovereign power. He can decide who lives and dies. He can say off with your head if you disagree with him. But there's this other idea that he came up with called biopower that you also have the power to create life. And if societies and states and countries could increase their population, could make them healthy, could have control over their bodies, that that was beneficial to them as well. And so it wasn't the power to decide who dies, but the power to decide who lives. And when he says to do that, they need power of people's sexualities, and in particular children's sexualities, because children, you know, they're at the beginning of your life. And if you get power over them then, then it extends again throughout the entire life. So what he says in his work is that they knew you're never going to end masturbation. That's a ridiculous idea. They knew this is a completely, you know, fool's errand. But in trying to eliminate it, they created all these forms of power. So, well, now you as the parent, though, they said, you need to watch your child and make sure they don't engage in this awful habit. And if they do, you as a parent can't solve it. You need to call the doctor. So now the doctor, instead of the parent, is the one who has full authority over the child. And the things that they proposed solutions were really creepy and weird. There were things like, oh, we need to have the doctor spend the night with him in bed to watch him and make sure he doesn't do this. And as a modern person reading that, I can't help but think that there's some really inappropriate behavior going on there. And so if you look at the way that circumcision began, historically, it was as this sort of campaign to end masturbation. And I believe a way to gain power over children's sexuality and over the bodies of, of young people. And from that person, you know, because if you look at the stated explanation, oh, it's cleaner, we're trying to, even the, the, it's trying to prevent masturbation, like it really does not make sense. But if you think, okay, well, 
what forms of power does this create? Who benefits, right? That makes a lot more sense. And even in today's society, well, it creates a huge profit revenue for the, the hospital system. It means that you know, it creates sort of a power over the child's body that extends throughout life. And then they make the money off the follow-up revisions, you know, if there's any kind of complications. So if you start looking at it from the perspective of power, instead of the perspective of like what their stated explanations are, it makes a lot more sense. And so the, the medical explanations, I mean, I could go through each study. I could go through, you know, all of the basically methodological errors that exist in the, the studies that were done on HIV and circumcision, how more people left the study than stayed in, how the people who were circumcised were coached to use condoms and the others weren't. And the people who were in the group that had less HIV also used more condoms, which seems like a really, you know, that would make sense as to why that happened and would explain it a lot more than the circumcision status. But then if you start looking at the amount of money that's flowing through those studies and the fact that the people writing those studies, uh, are also the ones deciding which circumcision device things like the World Health Organization are going to spend millions of dollars on. Oh, and they just happen to own that company too. So strange how that would work out that way. And so the stated explanations, I mean, we can go through them, but I don't know that there's, as you put it, wisdom there as much as cleverness. In other words, someone who wants to do something evil or bad is not going to be honest with you and tell you, Yes, like what actually is happening in circumcision is that an adult is holding down a child, touching their genitals and cutting part of their body off. They're going to create a story that allows them to do that. So they're going to say it's cleaner, it's healthier. Um, and, and one of the things that, you know, so when I was doing research on for my book, Children's Justice, one of the things I learned is that actually there's someone who I interviewed in the bonus features of American Circumcision who says the same thing that people who sexually abuse children very often will make arguments for it that it was somehow for the benefit of the child. Like, oh, the child wanted it. They're teaching him about, you know, some sort of like, this is for the child's own good. And uh, what the person I interviewed, um, who's an intactivist and you know, these bonus features says, you know, she was talking to a psychologist who works with people who sexually abuse children. He said, it's the same psychology, right? that there's sort of this argument of like, well, we're really somehow doing something that isn't wrong here. When, you know, without all that cultural conditioning, without the sort of uh, various explanations, it's very clear what's happening. So, I mean, I, like I said, I can go through any particular, like I know the science on this, I've read all the various studies, but I kind of feel like that's a smokescreen for what's, for the various other stuff. And it's also not how people make decisions. Like when you said you were talking to your friends about circumcision, I don't think, I, I doubt any of them said, oh, I was reading the academic literature on, you know, uh, urinary tract infections. Yeah. And that's really how I'm making my decisions as a parent. Like, of course not. They're making no. it on cultural things. And even if they were, like I was looking at the Australian government websites and they were saying, yes, uh, they were saying that it's a lower risk for a baby to get a UTI, urinary tract infection in their first year of life. But you know, me as a practitioner who sees a lot of babies, like, and even they said on the website how rare it is for a baby to get a UTI in their first year of life. So you're you're doing one thousand circumcisions to prevent one UTI, and UTIs. There's a lot of ways to fix that. Same with the the cancer of the penis, which is extremely more 
even more rare, and I think that's 10,000 circumcisions are needed to prevent one case of penile cancer. And this is this is coming from the Australian website. So Australia, although it's called American circumcision, it's more prevalent in America. It is prevalent in other countries, especially and if, if especially those living in a religious community or a community where it's prevalent, it's very it's high. The percentages is like Israel, like it's 90 plus percent. So if you've got a communities in Australia or other areas, Europe, it's, it's important for people to hear. But luckily in Australia, it's it's gone, it's re- reducing. It started at 80% circumcision in the 1950s. And I think today we're, we're like 4%, less 10 to 20%, 2010. And I checked 2016, 2017, it, it's 4% according to Medicare Australia, which is our, a private, uh, sorry, our public health care. So it's great, it's flipped. And I just think if people can... And this is what they're not even doing. Like, even you listening, I invite you, like, just stop and and listen to, like, feel into your intuition if you can, if you have that capability. You don't need too much. Like, feel into your heart. How does it feel to put a baby, strap them down and cut off them? Like, we don't have to look into all these things as much. Also, the body. It's very funny whenever I talk to people about the subject, they'll they'll say they're fine with it, but then you watch the sort of unconscious body tics of like covering the genitals. <laughs> oh my like God. Turning, you know, like weird little pain responses in conversation or like turning their body sideways. Oh. I've seen them all. So, mate, no, I'm with it. He says as he like guards himself physically. <laughs> I was guarding myself physically during your movie so much. <laughs> I was holding it. Does it happen? Have you heard that a lot? Like I was like, Really, seriously, putting my hand there, it was like healing or something. Like It was full on for me. And my wife yeah. is next to well, me watching it. Because like, there's a body memory of this stuff. Mm. There's like, it's in the body. And, and this is, tr- I mean, this is true of even of just social interactions, right? You're like you'll meet a person and your body relaxes around them and you'll meet a different person and your body tenses around them. Like your body knows on some level who's safe and what's safe and what isn't. And so... If, you know, like genital, even the words genital cutting, like, I don't think anyone's like, ah, you know, what would be really relaxing today. <laughs> you know? Good idea to do some genital yeah. cutting and mutilation. Yeah. Yeah. And in, even in Ayurveda, which is the traditional medicine I talk about, first of all, it's not mentioned anywhere. And surgery is a, is a big component of this uh, Ayurvedic medicine. It's not mentioned anywhere. But what is mentioned is in the penis has a lot of what we call marma points, which are these vital uh, energetic points kind of where acupuncture points come from and there's a really important one under the midpoint of the tip and it's i, I we, we recently had a patient and me and my doctor were consult me and my teacher were consulting and they wanted to get it one of the partners one two one didn't but they ended up going with it you know coming from a jewish background and and he said better wait till he, he compensated like and that's what i'm here to do as well and that what i want to discuss today is how people can go ahead with circumcision if they want to also but he he was like better wait till ten years old. They were doing it at nine days or eight days or whatever the whatever thing. Because right. this is another thing, people think that these babies don't get trauma, but we now know. And people still don't know this, but science knows that the younger, the more traumatic, right? And we used to think that babies don't feel pain. People used to doctors used to think that they don't feel pain, but that's these these traumas imprint more at a, at a deeper level, and they're not. At my circumcision, and yeah, I'll talk about it. Like, there was no anesthetic, as far as I'm aware. There was just wine used by the. So, this is causing. And it's funny watching a movie like we just talked about. Like, this is the first time I've really thought about my own personal experience 
mm. and and as and having these biological physical manifestations come up mm. but yeah i'd love to just go into that that young age and and that misconception well, you asked me earlier how i became interested in this i went through a period in my life where i was letting go of a lot of things from childhood that didn't serve me so i was doing self-development i was doing a lot of uh, meditation i was looking at beliefs that i had that no longer served me i was changing things in my diet and when i ran across this there was you know attention because there's not really anything i could do about it and i pushed it out of mind i pushed it out of sight and then when i was doing meditation later I had the word circumcision come into my mind and I felt this really cold sensation in the body. And it was like all the energy just drained down to my belt. And it was what I'd later call a somatic memory. You know, the idea that the body remembers certain things, but you know, just some part of my consciousness wanted me to look into this at that time. And that's when I went and started researching. And one of the first things I found was what well, you said that there's no anesthesia or there, there isn't, wasn't anesthesia used on it for a long time. It's still, like maybe only 50% in, of cases now. And even then, you know, one of the things that I learned while making the film is, well, if you don't wait five minutes for the topical stuff to kick in, then it doesn't actually work. And, you know, like they feel it. Like no, basically there's no way to put a baby under full anesthesia. So there is something there. And I, in my own healing work around it, you know, I, I've done a lot around it. And... It is stronger, you know, any sort of pre-verbal trauma is stronger because you don't have the ability to narratively process it. So as an adult, if something bad happens to you, you can tell a story about it and you can understand what's happening. Whereas for the child, there's just sensations and there's no, they experience time differently. There's no understanding of like, is this an experience that's going to end? Is this what my life on earth is? Why are they doing this? Are these people not safe? Am I not going to be safe with them for the rest of my life? You know, am I safe? Like all, you know, in the, in the early stage of, of life like that, the child is trying to establish trust and safety and this disrupts all of that. So, I mean, there's, there's so much that I could say about that, but I think everyone's healing process and journey is going to be a little different. And I have things that have worked for me, but they also are based on what came up around this for me. And for anyone else, it might be different. But I, I just, I, you know, I know too much about early life trauma. I, I think there's something there for anyone who experiences yeah. this. Yeah, and at the end, I'd like to share how people can research more on this topic. And I, I'm pretty sure you have sure. some good resources for the topic of trauma and psychology. Sure. I want to just bring up um, a vasectomy. So for those... It's a, it's a way of contraception where the, the male is chopping off a part of their um, reproductive system. And again, it's that older age. So that decision is being made and many things, but I don't recommend it because it is something where you're, you're like cutting off the circle of this um, life force circulation of what we call shukra or prana or both. So it, it's similar with, I just want to bring another medical component to that in terms of the ancient wisdom, the Ayurvedic perspective of when you're cutting that off, you're breaking this, this prana and it's the second chakra we call the Swadhisthana chakra, the sex chakra. So you're, you're cutting off this circulation of prana. You're, you're cutting off that circle. And this is similar to a vasectomy. So all these things and 
and then that can definitely linger whether it's whether then the trauma is noticeable or it's just expressing through sexual dysfunction impotence and so many other things and okay for more on the medical check out the, sh- the movie especially that hiv which is the biggest argument perhaps um you go into there's a doctor who really breaks down the study and exp- and, it, and unfolds the flaws in it and then you f- figure out that it's all funded by people like bill gates who are you know you're talking about kind of dark energies of manipulating things so all that all that oh it's funny the the film came out before all of the you know various uh I don't know what you'd call them conspiracy theories about <laughs> him or his relationship to other things. So it's funny to hear you mention that. Cause when the, when the, when I included sort of a moment mentioning like, Oh, these are some of the people who are involved that when the film first came out, that sort of plays as a like, wow, there's a lot of like really rich and powerful people behind this. And now to hear you bring it up and that I'm like, Oh wow. It plays <laughs> how we know a lot more about him. And yeah, it's just, okay. Yeah. So yeah. And yeah, I think that's, that's good for, and just that that pain, like, can we can we talk about that? Because is it true that babies they, they used to think that babies didn't feel pain, and the younger the baby, the more pain they kind of feel. Yeah, I mean, so we go into the studies that prove yes, children feel pain, and yes, that pain has an effect on behavior later in life, and and is remembered. And it's so interesting because oh, people will fight on that sort of memory thing, and oh, they can't remember it. And I'm like, okay, well, here's a study and like I can, we break down the whole study. Um, we show how there was children who, who experienced circumcision behaved later differently during the pain of vaccination. So when they were receiving a vaccine, one group of kids like reacted far more dramatically. And the researchers attribute this to PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So people have a traumatic experience, they have PTSD. When something triggers that later, the trauma that was there later is present uh, in addition to whatever's happening in the current moment. And I think just, first of all, for an, an, a child, an infant to be experiencing PTSD, I think people associate that term and diagnosis with like people returning from war who've, or who've experienced something like rape, but children who have been circumcised experience PTSD like symptoms, like, and they, they, they have a dramatic reaction to pain later. And that research is even accepted by pro-circumcision people. Like it's cited by groups that recommend circumcision is like, oh, this is why we need to use, you know, various things to numb the pain. But I don't think anyone's really taken in the seriousness of the implications of that. And then also when it comes to the psychological research or the research on trauma, there's a lot of things that I, I just think are intuitively obvious that you can trust that intuition on it and you don't need to wait for there to be these long studies. So the, you know, the doctors in the medical profession resisted using pain medication for the longest time. They said, Oh, there's no research. People did the research. It turns out. And like, eventually they're still inconsistently using pain medication, but obviously intuitively it's like, well, do babies feel pain? Obviously like just have you met a baby? You know, <laughs> it's really obvious that they do. And it's, it's sort of insane to me that anyone would think otherwise. And so there's a lot, you know, like you brought up earlier to the impact of vasectomies on energy systems in the body. And that's something where I don't know if that's been peer reviewed research, but I also know that, I don't know, like, you, do you need to wait for that research to come out 
to go to the obvious conclusion that removing parts of sexual organs changes the energy system of sexual organs. Like to me, that's sort of an intuitively obvious thing. And I, you know, maybe someone does a study and the intuitive thing is shown to, you know, the truth is actually counterintuitive in some way, but why, like, I, I sort of, I'm most curious about like, why does someone need this yeah. study? Like what's going on there? We've had this talk you know, on the like, show about like intellectual modern science yeah. versus ancient wisdom, which is associated, which is a wisdom comes from one's own consciousness. All this wisdom was uh, cognized from the field of all knowledge and how much do you need to verify? And it's uh, you when you start going down that route of kind of looking peer-reviewed studies and analy- analytical, you become going through a more narrow lens and you're perhaps missing a greater perspective. You know, in the book that I wrote, I talk about the concept of epistemic injustice, which is a really big idea in social justice and critical theory. And it's the idea that the way that you know itself could be a social justice issue and that our society privileges certain ways of knowing over others. And uh, the, the the book Epistemic Injustice is, is one of the most interesting things I've ever read. And, and one of the concepts that they talk about is the idea that basically that there are other ways of knowing. And, that, you know, the, the, if someone's way of knowing is invalidated because it doesn't come through peer-reviewed literature, that's a social justice issue. Because there's this idea that the peer-reviewed literature is entirely neutral and objective, but there are epistemic justice issues in terms of which research gets funded, who has access to that research. Do people from certain backgrounds have a greater chance of going to top Ivy League academic schools and, and getting into that research? Is the research that f- that's funded, are there certain interests behind that research? So, you know, there's an epistemic injustice issue around the fact that, okay, you know, if there's this idea that babies are experiencing pain from something, the medical community might not fund research to show that something they're doing is harming children. And so the research that gets funded to show that might have to come from other sources and like how much money, you know, some of the studies I reference in, in the film, there's one in particular on the sensitivity of the various parts of the foreskin. And that I know had to be independently funded because the, you know, various people performing circumcision are interested in funding a study that shows that what they're doing is removing the most sexually sensitive part of the male body and the most nerve endings. So even in just in which academic literature gets funded and, and presented, there's all sorts of these epistemic injustice issues. And then there's who, you know, is that the only way of knowing? Are there other ways of knowing that maybe can't be framed in terms of the peer reviewed research? So I saw, I wrote about this in the book. I saw an activist talking to a doctor at one point. The activist said, you know, that they felt personally really harmed that someone had cut off a part of their body without their consent. And the doctor, like almost robotically, not even listening, said, well, do you have any peer-reviewed research to, to back that <laughs> oh, up? No. It's like, no, I don't have any peer-reviewed mm. research for my own personal feelings as a human being. That's something that that person is an authority on. They're the authority on their own feelings and they don't need a study to show what so their feelings right. are. And so then there's all these sort of testimonial injustice issues around this uh, where, you know, if a man says, I'm fine with it, 
that is immediately accepted. If a man says, I'm not fine with it, there's all sorts of barriers to that. And like, oh, how do you know? And is there something wrong with you to feel that way? So one form of testimony is immediately accepted by the culture and the other has all sorts of pressure against it. And there's already these huge pressures for, for men, men to talk about ways they've been harmed or sexually assaulted. And, uh, so there's, there's massive, I mean, we could, there, I have a whole chapter in the book on epistemic injustice issues. There's yeah. hours I could it, do on that, but I'll, I'll it's stop really like it, it, This is where men have to be in their sovereignty and their autonomy of their own body and confidence and just like do what you want and be strong in that be a man <laughs> that's like masculinity is doing being what you want to do it's so ironic too that the <laughs> way like that what you said is actually true that that standing in your own truth standing in your own authority over what wh uh, who you are as a person and what you believe and what your feelings are standing up for protecting children protecting others doing something that might be personally difficult for you but is going to create safety for others those are classically masculine things to do and masculine traits and yet one of the things that the dominant culture around this issue does is it tries to attack the masculinity of people who do speak up and flip that around and and shame them and suggest oh somehow oh you speaking your truth or standing up for others is somehow less masculine or you're there's something wrong with you for doing oh, that and, it, and that shame is one of the ways that i think that the the people who are involved in the, in the system of general cutting i think that's one of the ways that they try to control and manipulate people and yeah. You know, it's the truth of these things is always very simple, right? Like stand in your truth. You know, you can trust the, the knowing of your own body. You have the right to make decisions about your body, about your sexuality. But the lies and the various manipulations are often complex because they have to be to trick you, right? And they are like, this is always the case with these things and politics, whatever it is. It's, I see it. And also the Vedic worldview is it's not like, some elite, dark, evil people trying to do this. But this is the result of the collective consciousness. And a lot of these fellas are probably been circumcised, have this trauma. And what's super interesting in this topic and this, and, and literally like I've, I'm currently away. As I said earlier, we've been here for two weeks. A lot of our friends, a lot of babies, like, and I've been talking about this a lot. I'm interviewing you. Like we watched the film, like I've been speaking a lot. And as you said, like men shut off to this topic. I've seen it. I speak to a couple. The woman is interested and the man just doesn't look me in the eye. He looks away. He's shutting off. He's not open to explore this trauma. It's this cognitive dissonance is there. And this is genitals, right? This is like, that's associated with your ego. So this is a fascinating, ironic thing with masculinity is how, and look, healthy masculinity is very toxic at the moment. It's they're becoming more feminine and feminine. But how is your courage to willingly explore and unpack this difficult experience with with courage and with with some stability and openness it's it's an interesting phenomenon yeah that that turning away i mean a shutdown is a classic trauma response right there's discomfort like we don't want to feel it shut it down i think people there's, there's this sort of cultural idea that not just with this but 
any negative feeling. Oh, if I like let, if the, if you let yourself feel it, oh, it'll just go on. And like there's this idea that it won't end. And the opposite is actually true. That if you go into the feeling and you consciously go towards it and you choose to feel it, it will change and it will end. It has to, if you fully embrace it and go towards it. And it's actually the resistance that is what goes on forever. So if you're someone's resisting a feeling, resisting seeing something, that it takes so much to keep those psychological defenses up. People don't I don't think people realize that like the ongoing psychological tax it requires on people to keep their their psychological defenses up. And actually if someone just felt it, even if it caused a mental breakdown for like one day, they would have it and then they would be done. And that's actually how the healing work works is that if you, if you feel it and you go towards it, it's done. And so there's all sorts of things around this issue where I used to have big feelings about it. And now, you know, like I, I can, I can, I think when I first started working on the film and, and, and approaching this issue, there was a lot of my own stuff I was working out. And now I'm really just kind of doing it as a, service to others there's intellectual things that I, enjoy. I like talking with people i like connecting yeah but but as far as my own stuff i i've kind of moved on yeah i've, I've you know there's not a lot left there maybe yeah, there's it, i don't know maybe i'll discover something but i feel like i feel good around it you know you when, can feel when it, it comes and up for me now that's it. Yeah. You know it. And that's that's you're in tune with your body. Like you you feel the healing has happened. So there you go. It's happened. And yep. I want to add that the healing also doesn't always have to be rough. And that's what like I love when we practice it with trauma. You know, you can see a psychologist or kinesiologist, whatever, and remember it, bring up the memory and go through it. It may cause some roughness, but there are other ways to heal where it's not so rough and it can smooth the heel. And I think a beautiful one and Agreed. probably what I'm doing myself is is sharing it with others because I feel the healing of that. If I can help other people, that's healing. And and I want to add like, I want to perhaps I'll say that, emphasize this in the intro as well, but this is really, like I am not at all in the slightest angry or upset with my parents, for example, or my community in the, in the slightest. I, I see it as a collective consciousness it's what happened. It's the karma. Everything happened for a reason, of course. But I just feel, yeah, it's they they didn't think about it at all. And I don't know. I don't, I don't have to go too much into it. But I just want to say it's and same with those listening. Like it's not your fault. Uh, it's if you've, if you've gone through it, like there's no point in feeling bad about it. It, it. There's no point of dwelling in the past. Take action in the present and move forward and share. I want to add two things to that. One is that if you, you are angry at your parents, that's okay too. Like feel that and heal that. And then you can be done with that too. I, I had a point where I was angry. I was angry at my parents for all, I've been angry at them for all sorts of stuff. Like I was angry about things. They taught me about religion. I was angry about decisions they made when I was a teenager. Like I felt it. I did what I needed to around it and moved on. And there's a really, you know, I read an essay a long time ago by a Zen teacher named Brad Warner, where he talks about anger and how very often the person that you're angry at no longer exists. In other words, the, the parent that I was angry at was someone who's younger than I am now, who had no idea what they were doing, 
And I mean, you know, maybe they had some idea. They had, they had, they had le- less access to information than I have now, but that person doesn't exist anymore. And the person who's in my life now is a grandparent who's great with the grandkids and is, has lots of wisdom that they've accumulated from all the mistakes they made with me, <laughs> you know? And so the person I'm mad at, just, they're not in the world anymore. They're, they're long in the past. And I feel like the same, now I have heard some people say they talk to their parents where their parents get very defensive. Right. And, and now there's a second, you know, anger of like, well, they're angry at the parent who made that decision a long time ago. And then they're also angry at the parent who's here now that won't acknowledge it. And I think that those two are some, you know, sometimes get combined, but they're different. And what I talk about in uh, my book, children's justice is I think the parents really get scapegoated on this issue and that there's this cultural idea around circumcision and genital cutting that the parents are the ones who decide it's a parental choice. And what I say in my book is no, it's not the parents did not build a giant hegemonic culture that told them this was the right thing to do. The parents didn't train doctors in how to do this. The parents didn't manufacture the circumcision instruments. The parents didn't create a sales funnel where like there's this huge cultural thing that you have to go through the hospital in the hospital, they high pressure sales you like eight or nine times to do this. And then maybe even tell the parents that all this propaganda around it, they didn't build that. The only thing the parents did is that they signed a form. That's it. And so what I say in my book is there's, there's no, there actually aren't, you know, there's parents who say that they're regret parents. They, they learn more about this issue. They regret making the decision. They, they wish they made, made a different decision. What I see is there's actually coerced parents. You know, if, in, if someone said uh, in any other situation, if there was the consent dynamics there are around circumcision, we would say there was coercion. So if there was someone who was pressuring another person for sex and they asked eight or nine times and they had someone who was important to that person that they wouldn't let go and to, and, and that they couldn't leave the situation. And there were lots of other people around them who were reinforcing the same idea. And there were things, you know, like if there are all those consent dynamics present. You say there's some coercion going on here. Right. And if the person eventually runs this, fine, you know, I, I'm fine, I'll do it you wouldn't say that's consent. You would say that there was some coercion. So I actually feel like on this issue, the parents don't have the inform when they don't have the information, but two, I actually don't think there's even really consent happening. What there is, is the hospital gets them to sign something and says, now it's all your fault. And we get to pin this whole thing on you. Yeah. When that that's actually not the reality of what's happening. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's the system. It's the collective consciousness. And even it's, Sure, like I totally uh, thank you for saying that. You can say okay to be angry. It's okay to be angry, whether it's your parents or at the system. But that's the past. Right now, we want to support the system to evolve to uh, greater compassion and greater uh, intuitive and tapping into the the ethics of human nature. And it has evolved. Look at the Australian statistics that I said. I, I think it's yeah. just that's the collective consciousness ring. Why would I pin my baby down and chop a bit of his body off? So I think that's great. Uh, so, Brendan, but there's got to be ancient wisdom. There's got to be like this has been going on for thousands of years. I've he- heard about the African tribes doing this. I love African tribes. I love culture. I love tribal, primal initiations, rites of passages. I'm interested in culture. I'm interested in this. What's the go here? So I'm trying to figure out which part of that argument 
or, or that idea you want me to respond to. You're Perhaps. asking like, well, if it's so old, why is like why yeah, well, has it been going on? Yeah, yeah. Where is is there value and wisdom behind circumcision? Because apparently, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know directly, but apparently, it's been practiced for thousands of years by religions, or especially which I'm more, I guess, uh, interested in authenticity rather than I know religions especially the Judeo-Christian religion is very altered and misinterpreted. And I'd like to speak about that as well. But even if I look at African tribes or these uh, indigenous tribes who apparently have them have, uh, have used circumcision as a rite of passage. Okay. So the question then is like, well, why are they doing it? What's the function? Any kind of hazing ritual. I mean, I think, I think of the, in the coming of age rituals, it functions as, as a sort of hazing. Actually, there's multiple things going on there. So again, it's a bit like if you look at how the medical community was originally using it, right? If you look at their stated explanation, it doesn't make sense. If you look at power, it makes a lot more sense. And in the traditional African, I'll give you this, the stated explanation and I'll give you what I think is going on. In traditional African circumcision, I interviewed a woman who underwent female circumcision in uh, traditional African culture. And what she told me, and what I've also researched from the, the oral histories of the Dogon tribe, um, but her culture was different from Sierra Leone. In the earliest stories about this, there's this idea that circumcision and genital cutting created gender. In other words, that children were inherently androgynous and that removing the foreskin from men was removing the feminine from men. So the foreskin's wet, it's enveloping, it's, it's receiving. So they remove that from men so that men become masculine. They have no femininity, cut that off. And then on women, they cut off the clitoris. So they remove the masculine element in the woman, which is, you know, the clitoris is erectile tissue. It's hard, it sticks out, kind of functions like a tiny penis. And so they remove that. And in traditional African cultures, they very, very often there's both types of genital cutting, right? And so what, in this story is the idea of the creation of gender. And what, what this woman I interviewed said is that she thought part of the reason that Americans were so incensed about female genital cutting and didn't care about male genital cutting was that women in America had fought really hard to, to have the ability to play the masculine role. In other words, you know, one of the meanest things you can tell a woman in American culture is, oh, go back to the kitchen, you know, go back to the kitchen, you don't belong here. And I was like, no, a woman can do any job a man can. They have the right to equal participation in everything. Whereas there isn't a cultural movement. So, so, you know, cutting off the masculine from women is like the essentially doing all of that in a very physical way, right? But there hasn't been a same, the same cultural movement for men. So if you tell a man, get back to work, I mean, that's just what you tell a man, right? There's no similar movement for men being allowed to play the feminine and seeing that as okay. And, you know, you've mentioned a couple sort of, I don't know what the word you'd use for this, new age is one that a lot of people use, but I think in those circles, there's this idea of integrating the masculine and feminine. You have the access to both your masculine and feminine. It's important to have access to both of those. You might choose one or have one that is more dominant or, or a larger part of your identity, but that you don't need to cut parts of yourself off. In fact, what we're trying to do is become a whole person, to be a fully integrated person, to have access to all parts of ourself. And so what I see in this 
early story is an idea that you had, you know, I, th I think a lot of cultures in the world have functioned around this idea of cutting off parts of aspects of the self that you have to like deny, disown, suppress things that are in some way disadvantaged, you know, that the society doesn't benefit from. And men, the traditional masculine role have, have traditionally had to sacrifice their safety and their well-being for the good of the tribe. So if a man goes into battle and says, actually, wait, I'm really scared in this battle and I don't want to do this. That's not what the tribe wants. The tribe says, cut that off, go fight, go sacrifice yourself for us. And so the function of genital cutting in traditional rituals and coming of age rituals is, are you going to sacrifice your pleasure and happiness for the good of the tribe? And if you do that in a really dramatic physical way, you know, in some of the African initiation ceremonies, the man is not allowed to flinch or show pain. And of course it hurts. Nelson Mandela in, in his writing said that his tribal circumcision was like the most painful experience of his life, just physically the most painful. How could it not be? How old um, was he at that? Do you remember? I don't know. As a teenager, I think. Okay. It's usually that's the age when it's, mm. when it's, you know, coming of age ritual. Mm. But that, you know, like as a function in the, in the tribe, it's also hazing rituals. If you do something really intense, um, there's which, you know, what they call buy-in. So it, I paid so much for this. It must be worth something is sort of, sort of the psychological mechanism. So if you could become a member of the tribe by just showing up, like everyone's included, it's you, you, people don't value it as much as if you had to really sacrifice for it. Right. So having to sacrifice to become a full member of the tribe makes people value that membership more. And then that membership is defined as, are you willing to sacrifice for the tribe? Are you willing to go through painful things to become a member of our group? And so I think that is the function of it in, in tribal societies, is that it creates people who are disconnected from parts of themselves and then will in turn do what the tribe wants because they're not connected to their own knowing. What's and that? that's a system that's been on this planet for a very long time. And, you know, you can decide if whether or not that's something that you'd like to let go of or not. But I think that most people, I mean, it's interesting because these systems, you know, they're still around today because they involve trauma and trauma almost, as I, as I talk about in my book, Children's Justice, it functions like a virus in the sense that it like implants itself in a host and then reproduces from that host. So traumatized people traumatize others. And if you almost look at trauma as like a separate organism, it makes a lot of sense the way that it functions and why people who've been traumatized, like have this sort of compulsion to reenact the trauma on others and things like that. And so the, the system is continuing to go. The trauma is continuing in certain people even though the thing that it was used for is gone. So there's people who don't have a tribe. They don't actually have membership in anything and they're still enacting the system and still enacting that trauma when it no longer serves them. And the thing it was created for doesn't exist anymore. And even if it did, it, that isn't actually what they would necessarily want to choose. Well said. And, and in terms of, for example, religious cultures, more mainstream, can you speak about, Christianity, it's it's not condemned. It's it's said right. Christ suffered for you, shed blood for all of you, and you don't have to do it. Although Christians, some Christians may think that it's the Christian thing to do, but that's clear that it's not. Muslim, I think it is. Is it right? It's a 
Yeah, in uh, Muslim cultures, it's done a little older, and both male and female circumcision are practiced mm-hmm. in certain Muslim cultures. Okay. Does it? Do so, you know the reasons for that? Why, what, what I haven't reasons? researched that as much, and so I might, I might say if something slightly incorrect. I think it's prescribed in the Hadith, uh, which is basically Islamic traditions or things you're supposed to observe. I don't know their full theology around it well enough to comment. And and part of the reason, by the way, I've focused on American culture and, you know, especially my documentary is because that's the place where I have cultural authority I can speak about. And I could research Islamic circumcision and become an expert in that. And no one who's involved in that system would, I I just don't, I don't know that they would listen to what I have to say. Even if, even if it was really well researched, I don't know if they would. Yeah. And then what are the roots of Judaism circumcision? How did that become such a prevalent thing? So there it goes back to the story in Genesis. And again, there's different, there's different explanations you could give for that. But story in Genesis is, you know, it's a very central part of the Jewish covenant. And, you know, at one point when I was working on the film, I was interviewing a rabbi about it and I said, you know, can you sort of summarize that, like why it's part? And he's like, he basically was like, that's a whole documentary, like just explaining all of the various, you know, beliefs and theology there. So I'm not going to try to summarize that here, but that's the short answer is there's a covenant in Genesis. Okay. And if, if I understand correctly, it was prescribed in, in the covenant. And it was a smaller part of the foreskin. And then that, that got shifted yeah. later years. So, I mean, first of all, again, we were talking about how there's things that are carried out because they're part of a system and then that system doesn't exist in the same way. So the original circumcision in Genesis, the Jewish covenant is a blood sacrifice. And it's, there's a, if you don't do it in the particular ritual ways, it doesn't count in the terms of that tradition. And so I think it's interesting to hear you talk about your friends and say, well, I, to, I do it because I'm Jewish. And it's like, what does that mean? Like, do you, are you doing it as a blood sacrifice that you think that if you perform this, that there's a deity that will grant you certain things? It's almost, you know, covenant almost functions as similar to the concept of a contract that like humans do this part and in return, the God does this other thing. So you sacrifice the blood of your newborn progeny to him. And then in return, he gives you many offspring and protection and success. And it's like, I don't think that even most people who say, Oh, well, I'm Jewish. I don't think that they're thinking about it that way. Just but like that many things. is, yeah. Like if you look at the original text, that's what's there. And Oh, and by the way, that the original text that prescribe it also presumes slavery as a concept. So it's do it to your newborns and slaves. Um, and that's just sort of a throwaway line. Cause everyone in that time would have thought, would have thought that slavery was a perfectly normal thing. So even in the justifications for it, you know, if you want to pull those today, there's a little bit of mental gymnastics required. And, and, you know, you mentioned Christianity earlier in Christianity, it's not done. The apostle Paul says that it, you know, that if you circumcise your children, Christ is of, of no value to you. And the idea that is that Christ was the last blood sacrifice and no further blood sacrifice is needed. But the original way it was done was that they would cut off, the very tip of the foreskin 
And most of the foreskin is still fused to the head of the glands. And you have to actually, if you're performing the modern version, you have to break it away and pull it up. And it's a much more severe thing. And that changed during the Hellenistic period because a lot of Jewish men wanted to participate in Roman, you know, athletic games, which were done in the nude. And it was considered very lewd to have that part of your body exposed because anyone who, you know, had an intact body, had their foreskin, would have had it covered. And so what Jewish men would do is they would do an early version of foreskin restoration. They would stretch the skin. They would pull it forward. And so what the Jewish leaders at the time decided, well, we don't want them doing that. So we'll make it even more severe so that they can't do that. Um, and again, we're talking about, you know, the the function of things as opposed to the stated reason. I, that's a case where I think that the the stated function and and is sort of a power justification of, well, we don't want these people to participate in an identity other than our own. So if they do this and they can become Roman, they would have an identity other than, than Jewish, and we don't want that. And, I, you know, arguments from identity are some of the most powerful. So if someone says, I am something, if someone says, I believe something, you can sort of debate them and say, well, have you considered this or that? Or maybe you would change your belief, right? If someone says, I am something, can you change that? Is that open to change? And so the, if you really want to control someone, what, pe- what you can do is you can add things to their identity. You are this, so that means you have to do this. And I'm going to go on a little bit of a weird tangent with this. Uh, there, I was reading a, a book at one point about like kink and BDSM relationships. And what the author said in it is he, they, they said that a lot of people, when they approach those relationships, they, they give like a list of things that they want in a partner. And he says, that's, that's, you know, if you make a list of 20 things, you have to debate 20 of them and maybe they will accept 19. And the, says just create a role. And if you create a role, then the person can become that role. So if this, you know, this is being kink relationships, they said, oh, this person is, you might say they're looking for a pet and a pet behaves this way. A pet loves their owner, right? Uh, And they they said it answers a lot of questions. So, you know, if someone says, oh, can I have dinner with you? I don't know. Do pets eat at the table, right? So now you've, by accepting that identity, the person has accepted all these other things that they didn't realize they were accepting at the time. And I, I know that that's sort of maybe a strange thing to bring up or like, you know, kink relationships and things like that. But I see something really similar in the way that people use their regular identities. So if someone says, oh, you're Jewish, you need to do circumcision because you're Jewish and you need to follow all these other things because that's your identity. It's like, hold on. Why? <laughs> you know, like, what does this identity actually mean? Is this an identity that the person chose or that it was imposed on them? Do they have a choice as to whether or not they participate in this identity? Like if you think, and, and the word Jewish too has uh, different meanings, right? So it could just mean someone's race, like their, their ethnicity. It could mean their religion. It could mean their culture. And because it could mean those different things, I think that when people use that word, they slide between those definitions. So someone will say, oh, you're Jewish. And what they mean by that is like your parents were Jewish or like that is what you would describe their their ethnicity or race. And so that means you have to follow this religion. And that wouldn't work on any other identity. You'd be like, oh, like you're you're white. So that means you have to love Jesus. Like that doesn't work, right? That no one would accept that. And yet because the word has multiple meanings, because there's this sort of sleight of mouth or, or 
even what you might even consider an epistemic injustice, that there's these multiple meanings being used, that that imposed identity kind of slips in there. And so since, oh, you're Jewish, you have to do this. First of all, maybe you're not the identity or definition of Jewish that this person is trying to impose. Maybe you have a different identity. And second, you don't have to participate in the identity that's imposed on you. So I, you know, in my own culture, I'm told I'm an American and people do the same thing there. Oh, you're an American. An American needs to behave this way. An American needs to love their country and stand up and willing to fight for it. And it's like, no, no, no. I get to choose my own identity. I don't have to participate in, in that. And I'm allowed to call myself American or Jewish and create my own flavor of that identity. And Exactly. And, and, and even then, I, I still think that there's, lar- you know, on the one hand, you can sort of create your own identity. But on the other, like there's these larger cultural definitions that, that people will impose around it. And I think it's important to be aware of those because so much gets like laundered into that definition. And so the modern version of it, I think, is it's very much, you know, in terms of, of Jewish identity and the reason that people who even who aren't religious um, will sometimes still fight on this, this particular issue is because in their minds, circumcision and Jewish identity are so closely related that they're almost one in the same. They, they feel like Jewish identity couldn't exist without circumcision. And what, what I, this, by the way, has very much triggered a lot of people. Uh, what I write in my, my, my book is that, okay, well, if that's true, that doesn't necessarily mean that circumcision is anything other than bad. What that means is that you have to change your identity in some way. And you have to let go of that definition and that identity you've created. And it's like, oh, no, I like, there's like so much, you know, defensiveness around that. And, and I think that people, when they hear that, you know, they have the idea that the ident- they, that they are the identity rather than the identity is something that's been imposed on them. And so if you say to someone, oh, you need to change this, if sometimes it's like, oh, that's who I am. And, and I, the truth is, it's, that's a choice. You get to choose who you are. And if that's who someone is in a given moment, that they're making that choice and they can make a different choice anytime they want. Such, such good points. It's dogma pervading through identity. As you said, it's such a strong method of implementing dogma and and, uh i just back on that point of people doing religious practices without understanding the essence of that practice it's not just circumcision you see it in all religions and what a great example like people are doing this circumcision with such uh, rigid and definite i'm doing this and not knowing why the hell you do like i'm doing this because my identity that's exactly what you said and it's not like Oh, what what is the essence? Why am I, it's, it's it's like the spiritual meanings being stripped from, especially these mainstream religions. We see it in various ways. So that's good. And and in Judaism, for example, they're doing a lot of these initiations, rite of passages for the for the male, which they call a bris, and they're doing it without the cutting. Right? They're doing other what is it eight days or nine days? They do this typically, and they're doing the same procedure, but just without the the cutting of the body. So, yeah. So there's many ways you, this is again, still the guys, people are identifying with Judaism and, but they're doing it in a way which is, has connection to themselves rather than letting the dogma of various imprints express and permeate. 
I gotta say, when when you mentioned that, I had some body stuff come up around that because the some of the people who are involved in that way of expressing Jewish identity of like, oh, we can do it without the cutting, really do not like some of the things that I've written in my last book and are are very mad at me because I think in their from their perspective, they want the identity without the cutting and what I say in the book is that there's a system that is involved in that cutting and that you might need to let go of the identity. And like, what would that mean if you did? And that's really triggering to them. And I, you know, it's one of those things where it was very challenging for me because I found out after my film was out, I found out that there were some people who were in the movement, who um, the intactivist movement, who were Jewish, who were kind of doing things behind the scenes to try to stop the film and turn people against it. And I think that's also what made me rethink some of these, because I, I would have said the same thing a long time ago. I was like, well, you can just sort of create your own definition of the identity and you know, you can just, you can have the identity without the cutting. And like, look, these people are doing it. And, and the people I would have pointed to to say that, and I learned later, were doing things behind the scenes to try to shut my documentary down. And I thought, I have to rethink this now because like, I would have pointed them and said, oh, you can let go of this you know, cultural system. And there were ways they were still participating in that cultural system. And it, it was such a betrayal. And it made me like have to rethink all of this and go, okay, well, can you have the identity while letting go of the cutting? Like, I don't actually know. And I still haven't seen an example of someone who really clings to that identity and at the same time isn't in some way participating in the cultural systems of genital cutting. In other words, if the larger culture has this idea that this identity is synonymous with genital cutting, then by reinforcing that identity, or participating in it and protecting it, are you in some way still reinforcing that system? And that's the question that I think that people are really afraid of and that I've, like, when I look at it, it seems like, well, why don't you just let go of the identity that seems like the path to least resistance? Like, what is the attachment? You know, could you just let go of it? Like, I, there's so many identities that I was brought up with that were just like a given that like, this is the truth of the world and who I am that I've let go of. I don't like, I think there's a lot of trauma there that, that causes course. people to be resistant Absolutely. to that. Of like, oh, I've sacrificed so much for this identity. I have this whole history of things I've, I've been persecuted for this identity. And I've had people try to push me out of this identity. And it's like, that's sunk cost. That's the, 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 the tribal psychology of, well, I've, you know, I, I went through this whole initiation ceremony and the tribe, you know, I, I suppressed and denied parts of myself to belong to the tribe. And it's like, was that a good choice? Can you make a different one now? You know, I, I, there's so much there. Um, so, so I think we need to transcend identities and not be bound to this and have, you you phrased it well <laughs> and know that actually we are, dynamic beings that have all of these identities within us. So I can have the identity of a Jewish person who says you have to get circumcised and a non-Jewish person who says that and a, and a Jewish person who doesn't want to be circumcised. Like that's all within me. So 
I think it's too limiting to say identify this or donate it or drop the identity is also limiting mm. because I for me I'll say for me for example my blood is Judaism I hardly practice Judaism I don't connect with it much but I have a part within me which identifies with that and circumcising is not a question for me it's it's an intuitive thing which it wouldn't be and I and I in terms of other people's comfort or whatever like I'd recommend no if they asked me but it's it's that having that dynamism of being able to be flexible and share that. I hope that kind of makes sense. I, I, You're I, articulating yeah. one of my favorite spiritual ideas: the idea that everything that exists in the universe it also exists in you in some level. Am I am I reading yeah. this correctly? Yeah, that like you can't look out in the world and say, "Oh, that's a bad person," without going like, "Oh, that person's kind of in me somewhere." Exactly. So yeah, I think in that point we can say bits of the we can't just be don't fight it yes or no kind of thing anyway yeah so maybe i'll rephrase my articulation it's a it's a choice to participate to yeah. participate in the identity or the cultural systems it. around that identity yeah and it's hard I, I understand what you're saying and it's also we yeah i guess compassion there comes as you have you as you have compassion of maybe it's they've been doing all this work their forefathers have been doing all this work so it's there in this, people are in this conflict of being, how do I ba find that balance? I've been raised in this culture by this tradition, this religion, these people. I can't just turn, do I, is fight, maybe they're a person who, who's not like you, Brendan, who makes a documentary about it and who's an activist <laughs> about it and who's going to go against that. Maybe they're just, they can feel that in their heart. Obviously it's, I don't, but I can't go against, I'm not that fighting warrior <laughs> kind of person. So... Yeah, it's it's too dynamic. I mean, everyone's personal experience and how they interact with conflicts and what they feel. It's funny. I I don't I don't I, don't, I think I would accept the explanation if they wouldn't try to be a warrior against me when I brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> that well, way. that's that's as you like, said. No, no, you, I see you. You do have a little warrior in you. <laughs> yeah, no, I do. <laughs> okay. okay, yeah, fine. Maybe I'm in there too. <laughs> okay, it's good. It's good. Okay, cool. So, cool. I moving forward. People have been, look, this has been a light conversation compared to perhaps the, the movie is my experience. I, I cannot recommend enough to go watch this movie. Um, but the people who are going, proceeding and who want to get, like what can people do to move forward? Watch the movie. Don't feel bad. Foreskin restoration, we haven't spoken much about, but I do want to mention like people are doing foreskin restoration themselves. The movie goes into quite some ways to do it. One thing I just actually want to talk about as well briefly is the sexual sensitivity. You you touched on it. Of I mean, yeah. people, I've asked um, my community before we do podcasts, we ask questions on Instagram, anyone has questions on circumcision for this podcast episode. And there was quite a few questions on the sensitivity. And certainly it's really well known now. And you've got a wonderful um, person who dem literally demonstrates it. We don't see the, the thing, but he does presentations on, photos and cameras of him touching his penis and his foreskin in different ways and showing multi-orgasmic experiences and uh, you know i can't say <laughs> i haven't had i don't know i haven't had that uh, foreskin to be able to experience that but people who have foreskin do report different accesses of uh, orgasms and and sexual sensitivities which is there so that's that's something which definitely i think is quite well established would you say brendan in the sexuality realm 
Yeah, it's it's one of those things. Well, I mean, first of all, like different people are going to give you a different answer there. There's people who will absolutely. It's funny, like there's even a, a human sexuality study I read where you look at the data and certain groups have more sensitivity than others. And then you look at the abstract and they say there's no difference. And, and so it's pretty obvious that there's a sens- sensation difference. And there's studies that I can point to to show that. And then there's a lot of really bad science around it. So you know, self-reported sexuality data is kind of a mess. And like a lot of the studies that say there's no difference, they just ask people, hey, do you feel good about your sex life? And they <laughs> say yes. And then they go, well, we've done a study <laughs> now, you know? <laughs> um, so it's that's kind of a mixed bag. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, one of those things where even if you, you don't have your full foreskin, you can test this on your own body. You can run your hand over the remaining foreskin and the part that's not foreskin and feel the difference. So it's one of those things where, again, if you go to the body knowing it's pretty obvious and then there's a whole bunch of science that shows the same thing. Yeah. What was the name of that nerve ending? Uh, Meisner's corpuscles. Yes. Yes. And then the example that they give is very nice is the difference between your, your back of your hand and your, front or like the the palm of your hand and the and you can feel the difference in sensitivity because the front has more of the my course <laughs> those those nerve endings that you mentioned so yeah so so moving forward like what would you suggest as some steps that people can take to rectify their trauma future trauma and i don't know just this whole it's just it's a societal issue it's not just an individual thing and just creating more peace around sexuality, genital sovereignty, and for yeah, men, that's, masculinity. Well, there's so many issues that this intersects with that my answer feels like it needs to be a little different for each person. Mm. Because what I would do if you're listening to this and wondering what to do next is to tune into your body and your own knowing and see which part of this conversation brought something up for you? Was it the conversation around identity? Was it the part around sexuality? Was it the part around masculinity? And the one that brought something up, positive or negative, that triggered your excitement or maybe triggered a feeling you didn't know you had until that conversation came up, go towards that with whatever form of presence feels best for you. In other words, just see what's there. And if you're interested in getting more information on the part that interests you most, there's books on nearly every aspect of this issue. There's my work. There's the film circumcisionmovie.com. You can go watch it there. There's a whole bunch of podcasts I've recorded. There's uh, on the Brennan Marotta show. There's a sub stack I have uh, that goes really deep into larger social justice issues if that's your interest called hegemonmedia.com and now a book on activism called the intactivist guidebook and a book on social justice stuff that's you know not just this issue although there's a big focus of it there called children's justice and then there's a bunch of stuff that's by other people so tons of stuff on trauma healing and different healing methods tons of stuff on human sexuality it just sort of depends what interests you the most. And of course, if we go into men and masculinity, that's a whole other topic that we could probably do a whole podcast just on that. Yeah. I highly recommend um, men listening to this or or those identify with the masculine to do some men's work. I think it's something which is, we call men's business or speak to men. It's coming. I see it coming up as a 
more popular thing, but a lot of men, as the masculine tends to internalize their emotions and not share it and talk about things, particularly topics like this and sexuality, partner, relationships, all these things, I highly recommend join and, and talk about it with your men's group. So, hey, Brendan, I've got to ask one more thing, which I've got to ask. It's, it's I think it's a big topic. So maybe just if okay. you can add some brief things. Because it's, it's about the social justice aspect and the ethics. I'm yeah. not into law. I don't know much about it. I think it's like, well, how do you classify law? Is it natural law or is it like what the governments create? But put it this way, in the sense of, say, 10-day-year-old child, for example, which is what when it happens it's for a lot of people, circumcision, are they their own... <laughs> Because you say you're violating human rights, but aren't the parents their guardians? For example, in, in the Vedic culture, you can pierce your child child's ears at 21 days. That's good for health. It stimulates an acupuncture point or a mama point, right? Like, if the parents want to do that, is it really like violation of human rights? Like, is it the parents' responsibility or the... Yeah. Um, so, the short answer is that every human rights, most human rights violations throughout history were legal when they occurred, meaning that the, the ruling power of that state was fully complicit with what they were doing and they thought it was okay with whatever justifications they used for that. So the question of whether or not something is right and whether or not something is legal are two different questions. In the United States, there is definitely a legal argument to be made that circumcision violates existing laws and we could do a whole deep dive on the various things there but the difficulty is is that law usually follows culture so even when there's a contradiction in the law and what people are doing most judges and courts are very reluctant to go against what they perceive as the dominant culture and then you, you also bring up the question of, well, who is responsible for protecting the child? Is it the parents or is the larger culture, do they ever, does the larger culture have a responsibility to protect children even against their parents' wishes at times? And again, there's a moral question there and there's a legal question and those are different. Legally, parents are guardians and that they have a legal responsibility to protect their children and in cases where children are being abused by their parents on every other issue, the state can and often intervenes. So people do not have the right to sexually abuse their children. They don't have the right to cut other parts of their children off. This, because of the culture that exists around it, I think the reason this isn't treated the same way by the law is not, has nothing to do with the law as much as the culture. Yeah. And then in terms of like who is morally responsible for a child, I think there's an argument to be made for both. In other words, if society doesn't protect children, society has done something wrong. And if parents don't protect their children, parents have done something wrong. And in order for a child to be harmed, every aspect of society responsible for protecting children has to fail or abdicate in their duty in some way. Yeah. So you know, we were, we've been talking about this as a system in order for this system to exist, all of society must be complicit in it. Mm -hmm. And that means that 
on the flip side, everyone has a role to play in changing that system and doing something better. Yeah. Or the majority to shift that collective consciousness. Okay. Beautiful. Thanks, Brendan. And I just want to say, and they talk about it in the film as well, because you've got this amazing doctor who speaks up about it, but who is performing circumcisions because so many circumcisions are being performed wrong without proper anesthetic and without proper procedures. So for those who do want to circumcise, like, cool, go for it. it. you, perhaps you want to, if you really feel in your heart and you want to do it and you've explored and you've had open mind, great. L- learn, watch the film, learn some things to know. And there's some Ayurvedic things we also recommend, like doing oil massage to the baby before to protect it. So many other things, remedies and herbs. I, but- I would add though that there's, a, I think there's a moral difference between an adult choosing it and then doing it to a child. Those are, those are, so I can understand why an adult might make a choice to alter their body in some way based on their beliefs. But the big, you know, the big difference there is that a child, you know, you say, you know, think about it, get information. The child can't do that. No. So absolutely. It's, there's a question there of even whose choice yeah. it is. Yeah. And, and that's perhaps another thing. If you are wanting to do it, you should explore another aspect. And yeah, it's a, you're being very gentle. And, I'm being uh, very gentle, I, I, and I'm trying to I'm be inclusive that on this issue. I know, I know, but I I, I appreciate that, and mm. my, it's not my truth. <laughs> I, I, I I get it, but yeah. yeah. To be honest, I don't know how many people are going to be listening to it, but I think look, we've said enough. Watch the movie. That's gotta. That's gotta perhaps support you to go into what you as a human really coming from the heart. Because I think that's what you know, it comes down we, to. Yeah. Tap into your heart. You know, you just made me realize uh, there's a, you have a very, I think this is, again, a reflection in a slightly different way, methods of healing. So you mentioned how healing for you can be very gentle. And it sounds like that your uh, approach even to something like this is similar. And a lot of the healing methods that I that just for me have worked are ones where you go really into the feeling, even if it's a negative one. And from my perspective, my experience, there is a safety in that. And so I noticed like you're wanting to be very, or not I'm wanting to be inclusive. It's yeah. It's not. And I, I have a different approach, which is that like if someone's triggered by me or there it's something comes up for them, like, good, yeah, you can be with that. I'm okay with that. Like, I know that some of the things I say are gonna bring stuff up for people, and I don't I don't know a way to speak this truth that isn't gonna bring stuff up for people. And from my perspective, like that's okay. And so if someone hears something I said and they like oh, I you know they're triggered, they're okay, like be with that. I'm okay with that. Yeah. So no, no, I feel you. like my truth is like, I don't think it's okay. And, and, yeah. um, I, I don't even think it's necessarily a choice. I think it's a, it's a moral issue, Absolutely. but if that brings something up for you and you, you have a different perspective, like, great, I'm excited to know. And, and I'm excited for what explore, what you'll learn and gain from exploring that. <laughs> yeah. No, I feel you. I, first of all, well, I didn't say that the healing is gentle, but it can be smooth as in yes. uh, not be bring up things. So it's still like yes, powerful healing. And yeah. that was more to be 
to be this look of the person who may be listening to this but who are still generally in there really wanting to do it i'm just trying to be inclusive so if you maybe it's a strong religious thing yeah but yeah i definitely invite you to <laughs> i'm trying to, to be polarizing sorry no it's fine it's good because it's, <laughs> the, the balance is there friends and and there's a part of me as well we're like you know come on man like i mean you got to think more about this and if you're feeling something that's coming up go into that and don't ignore it and push it aside. And I don't think you should be doing that, ignoring things or pushing aside and, and just going with what's more comfortable, which may be going with a path that you're, you were going to. But um, yeah, I'm just, I don't know. You've, you've got the resources. You can check out the show notes. BrendanMarotta.com is his website. You can see, learn more. There's a lot of stuff. I was looking at some cool movies you've shot. That Indian, the jungle war in india <laughs> looks cool <laughs> and um yeah anything else you want to leave the audience with or? um well i mean circumcisionmovie.com that I, I made that to be the um you know you can sit down and watch a movie and have no more than 90 percent of the people in the world in under two hours um yeah that's probably the best place to start but i'm you know there's I'm, I'm like you said, I'm working on, I've got a sub stack and a podcast and I'm on social media and I'm doing new art stuff. And I'm, I've written, co-wrote a novel with my dad that uh, has nothing to do with anything we talked about today. It's just a very family friendly Christmas novel. And I'm working on something that maybe has some spiritual themes and uh, there's always new stuff coming out. But if you're just interested in this particular issue, that's probably the best place to start. And I'm just be content, like whatever, sorry really um show my gratitude and, and honor this because it's it's really the great place to start around this topic as far as i'm concerned i haven't researched it extensively but that's the power of movie media as well it's just a wonderful easy way to absorb so thanks brendan thank you so my friend as i said really sit with this share this with people, especially those who are about to have a baby, if they, whether they know it's a baby boy or they don't know about the gender that's coming. This is so important for people to listen to. From there, hopefully, you can go watch, they can watch American Circumcision, the, the movie, what an important movie. And if you need any assistance in, in healing from trauma, in healing reproductive organs as a male or your male in your life you want to help heal, definitely we have certain techniques in Ayurveda and in our clinic. By the way, do we even have specific oils? We have specific uh, herbs to remove those imprints we call some scaras, which is where the English word scar comes from. And that's removing the, the traumas, the, the imprints, the scars from the nervous system and from the memory of the cells. We want to reinvigorate that cellular memory to remove that which is irrelevant and create new memory of health and radiance and that being said look there's many people who are circumcised and they turned out fine but of course it's just one aspect which is another significant aspect which can be prevented it is huge about prevention and if you had, didn't prevent it and you went into that path you inflicted that that's fine um, you can you can heal and you can move on from various things so can't recommend once again i've said it multiple times watch the movie and check out Brendan's work. And we're doing a giveaway for five people, which is quite a decent amount. There's a high chance of winning. You can win either one of Brendan's work, one, sorry, one of Brendan's books, 
or Brendan has a podcast, but he also has like a, an advanced subscription base where you get access to more information. So it's, it's a really fascinating podcast. Have a look at it. It's got some good topics on all these areas. So if you're interested in any of that or you want one of his books, all you have to do is follow both Vital Vader and Brendan Marotta on Instagram and on the Instagram post associated with this podcast episode, there'll be a highlight of this episode. You can comment one takeaway that you got from this episode and then we will randomly pick five winners. If you want to enter again, you can leave a review on iTunes. And again, one takeaway which you got from this episode will randomly pick a winner. So this is how you can win. And I really, really want to just emphasize again to be in the present and move in this in the most graceful way you can. Reach out if you need anything. I offer consultations. We offer many ways to bring the mind and body in balance so that you can live life with the least amount of friction, with vitality and reminding your physiology of perfect health. So we're here for you at Vital Veda. You can check out our website for consultations. You can check out our Instagram for more information, newsletter. Until next time, much love.